Today's program was brought to you by 100 Bogart Street, the brand new co-working space in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Learn more at 100bogart.com. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network. We are a member-supported, nonprofit food radio station. That means that every single thing we do, from broadcasting 35 weekly shows for free to bringing you exclusive content from sold-out food events across the country to offering scholarships to high school students, is only possible thanks to the support of our loyal members. And we want you to join the club. Become a member during our 2017 Summer Drive to get access to sweet swag and pledge your support to the world's only food radio station. Visit heritageradionetwork.org donate to become a member now. Trying to find a restaurant to go to tonight for dinner? Yeah, there's an app for that. Hello, hello, Heritage Radio Network listeners tuning in from 65 countries around the world, a million listens a month. I love to say that. It's very exciting to me to think of people in 65 countries around the world tuning in to listen to Tech Bites, the weekly show on the Heritage Radio Network where we talk to influencers and innovators in the food tech space. And today... We have a full house in the shipping container in the Roberta's Pizza Backyard. We have not one, but two restaurant recommendation apps. We're going to be talking about apps in a very functional kind of roundtable way. I'm looking forward to this. So we will do like we always do and go around the shipping container and introduce everyone so people can put the names to the voices and talk about apps. We start every episode talking about apps, apps you have recently discovered, old favorites that have been living on your home screen for the past 10 years. And the only rule is you cannot talk about an app that you work on, own, or have invested in. So first up, we have Bradley Scott, who is the co-founder of Etch App. Sitting next to his colleague, Michael Guigley, who is his other co-founder, Bradley and Michael. Thank you for coming out. Good uh, afternoon. It's great to be here. So, Bradley, do you have an app that you like right now? I do. Um, So I am a recovering bad password person. Okay. So I, like probably many other people, um, had been in the bad habit of reusing the same password for many, many things. Um, And I've recently just discovered LastPass, which I now use as my password manager of choice to create insanely hard-to-guess passwords. Um, I don't know what would happen if I ever forgot my LastPass password. <laughs> Do you um, have that written down in a secure place, like that, a tattoo on your person somewhere? <laughs> it's in it's in Box, um, or Dropbox, so, so I have it there. Do you have a, a real-life hard copy? No, I don't. <gasps> I don't. What happens if the internet goes down or there's an electrical thing? Then I'm not going to need any of my online stuff anyway. Mm. If the internet goes down. Possibly. (laughs) But, you know, you could be in a situation, 
as I was a few years ago after Hurricane Sandy when southern Manhattan was blacked out for about eight days. So when I was at home in my apartment, I did not have any electricity. And that meant also that all the cell phone towers were down. But when I walked north of 23rd Street, magically, there was electricity. So... All right. Well, I'm definitely going to go write it down now. So the problem was LastPass didn't tell me to write it down. Right. So, so then you didn't. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's nice to have a hard copy. Okay. So that's technology. good. So um, having a more powerful, secure password thing is definitely something all the experts talk about doing to improve your personal internet and digital security. So nicely done. Thank you. Michael, do you have a, a app that you like right now? So I use a select few number of apps. They're usually the big guys, so I won't talk about those ones. But the one that I would say is sort of newer to me is the Nike Plus Training Club app. Okay. Um, I like that one because I hate coming up with a routine at the gym. I hate just wandering around, people looking at me, you know, what is he doing? Is he even working out? So I, I tend to uh, rely on the app to give me the exact instructions that I need. So you said it's new to you. What was your um, inspiration for downloading it? Were you in this? The last time I bought a pair of Nike sneakers in the store, they tried to get me to download the app like on the spot at the register. I think I was just, uh, you know, I was getting back into working out and I, I realized that I needed something to motivate me. And by having a schedule, I felt this um, this need to go to the gym because it laid it out. It would say, you need to do this on Monday, this on Wednesday, this on Friday. I told it I wanted to work out three days a week. and So it's almost like a personal trainer. Exactly. And then it, you go into it and it tells you exactly what to do. It gives you little demo videos in case you don't understand what they're talking about. And so it was perfect. Is Good it free? It's free. That's amazing. So how long have you been using it? Five months. That's pretty good. Yeah. Five months is pretty good. Yeah. Okay. I think you're the first person that I've I've spoken with who's who's really using it in that fashion, but that's really good to hear. I need that structure. Yeah, a lot of people do. But a lot of people download things like that and then can't stick with it and then it disappears after a little while. Well I also have its companion app, the the Nike <laughs> running app. And so I used that before when I was training for a half marathon a few years ago and so when I saw this one out there I, I downloaded it and it's been working well. Okay, good. All right. Sitting next to Michael and Bradley, we have Josh Henner and Ross Langley, who are from Tell, another restaurant recommendation app. So Josh and Ross, thank you for coming out. Um, Josh, do you have an app that you like right now that you're using a lot? It might be a little boring, but um, Waze. I'm, I'm pretty baffled by the network effect that we're able to create and repurposing data. That's honestly pretty boring. Um, Waze is the app for traffic and driving directions, right? Cor- correct. Yeah, it was, it was purchased by Google for right around a billion dollars. Israeli startup, and you know, you, you question why arguably the best open source geodata company on the planet in Google Maps, and not so arguable, paid a billion dollars for a startup. I mean, it just goes to show you that thinking about data outside the box, being able to repurpose it data that's in existence today that people just really aren't thinking about maybe the way that you are it can be incredibly powerful i mean just driving the long expressway you know being taken on a shoulder route for 45 minutes while everybody else is sitting gridlock traffic to your left it's it's unbelievable from 
a very, very small data set, and they get it right every time. So are you enamored with Waze because it is a billion-dollar unicorn startup? Are you enamored with it because you find it really great and functional when you're driving around? No, I'm a former finance guy, so I wouldn't have left and uh, founded a, a tech startup if, if money was the main motivating factor. No, I'm talking about your if the, the fact that you like this app. Is it the, the no, billion-dollar sales app, or is it the functionality when you're in your car? No, it's it's the thought process that a very theoretically, you know, machine learning, so on and so forth, incredibly robust and, and technologically complex behind the wheel, but, you know, 20 people can find a better path of driving. Like, being able to impact my daily commute is an incredible thing through an incredible piece of technology that people probably take for granted. We have had people talk about ways before, but I've never heard people, this is the first time we've had people articulate sort of the depth of the app as well and talk about those other aspects as being as being alluring. So that's very interesting to know. I didn't realize that they had been sold for a billion dollars. That's amazing. Um, Ross, do you have any apps that you like right now? Um, yeah, there's one I've been using a lot lately that I, I don't know if I'm addicted to it because of the nature of the app itself or whether it, it's great to use. I think it's a combination of both, but um, it's Robinhood, the free stock trading app. Um, I'm fairly new to it. I, I don't. I only downloaded it and started trading like probably three or four months ago. I think April was my first trade. And he's been crushing it, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I got it lucky a couple of times. Um, are, are, will you be giving to the poor later? Um, something like that. Okay. <laughs> Back into the app, probably. Right. Well, well, actually, it's hard to interject, Ross, but it's funny that you just said that. That's the reason they called it Robinhood. And actually, the founders, they just, I mean, their valuation now is insane, but in a great way. They've, they've statistically saved a half billion dollars to date from fees and transaction processing from right. major trading platforms. It's unbelievable. So a half billion dollars... That would literally be in the pockets of TD Ameritrade and Fidelity and Scott Trade, you know, are back in Ross's pocket. It's it's really incredible. Yay. Do you, that's, yeah. that's a lot going on in your back pocket there. It's it's just fun. I mean, I don't have much in it, um, but uh, it's kind of a star child in the App Store. And um, I think to like the barrier of entry for something like finance for someone like me who's uh, I'm a designer I'm not mathematical at all um, not that that's required for for trading but um, I think the barrier of entry to understand something like that and be passionate about it is pretty high and I think it's also a trust barrier that's a completely different yeah. level because we're talking about um, money mm -hmm. people's yeah. money yeah, and the risk as well. I mean, being unfamiliar with it, again, like the, those unfamiliarities and, and how much time people dedicate into that as a profession kind of makes it intimidating. But there's something about the ease of use with the interface and their onboarding that make it, it it's, you get it pretty much immediately. And you don't have to have much to start trading and get how it works. Um, and the interface is, you know, very, very clean, very simple. And uh, it really, I it's a perfect example of keeping things very simple and clean so that the information is forward and you just trust the user to get it if, if, if you're confident enough in the product. And, and so I love it. I, I, at this point now, the, the romance of the actual interface and using it from the perspective of a, of a designer has kind of been uh, worn away. But now what's left behind is like this actual real engagement with, with um, 
with that world and it's led me to research like well what am i getting into if i'm if i want to get into sustainable stocks or sustainable etfs I'm, I'm researching it and i'm getting a better understanding of the market and how that works and how people how how businesses would invest their money and causes they're interested in so it, 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 i think if it has that effect for most people it's pretty powerful so well it sounds like you're a good test case in that I mean, finance and trading is already an intimidating subject for most people. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the average person doesn't really understand what it means to be trading stocks and what the markets are and what all the different ramifications and costs are. And then you add technology on top of that and apps. And there's still a huge segment of the population who find apps and things like that very intimidating. So you have an intimidating service with a tech app, you know, on top of that to, you know, dive in and use it. So the fact that you are not from finance, but you find it interesting and easy to use to the point that you're, you know, going further to researching things and stuff like that is probably the best testimonial. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're maybe they're listening and they'll call you. <laughs> call me, Robin. So to continue on the app conversation, restaurant apps, apps to recommend restaurants. We've had a lot of different kind of restaurant tech, consumer-facing restaurant app tech here from Cover to Resi, uh, Caviar, you know, all those different types of things that do different pieces of the puzzle. We've had one or two recommendation apps, um, but this is the first time we've had a full house of people and a full house of some really the new ones. Everybody wants to know where to go for dinner. You know, and in New York City, there are something like 35,000 restaurants, upwards of 35,000 restaurants, things that are categorized as restaurants that don't include things like bodegas and delis where you could get food um, to eat that's ready-made, but it's not necessarily a restaurant. So it's definitely daunting. We have content sites. Um, We have Google Maps where you can just say find restaurants in the neighborhood and things like that. And we also have, you know, at this point, a huge number of choices for restaurant recommendation apps stemming from, you know, old, you know, old tactile guide books like the former book Zagat, which is now an app and an online entity to pull through content from things like Eater to, you know, now things like Tell and Etch. So I think one of the, you know, one of the questions that I would ask um, all of you is what it what was it about this particular service that you were interested in providing given that it is you know it's 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 something that's pretty crowded right now and i know that part of the startup story and part of the um entrepreneur story is very much that everyone you know has a has a unique point of view and a belief that they can sort of build a better mousetrap but i i would be curious what was it that inspired everyone to sort of to wade into uh, an arena that's that's certainly competitive. Sure, I'll, I'll start it off. Um, when we came up with this idea for Etch, it was actually a few years ago, and the idea wasn't immediately about restaurant recommendations. It started as a way to save your favorite places. So Brad and I, we moved from Boston to New York, and as you mentioned, there's so many great restaurants. So we were... And a lot of bad ones. A lot of bad ones. That you want to avoid and remember exactly. not to go to, exactly. as well as the good ones to remember to go to. Yep. <laughs> and so we, we quickly realized that we were trying a lot of new places, 
but we would forget them um, fairly quickly after trying them. And so we wanted a simple way when you were sitting, enjoying your meal in a restaurant or, or having a drink um, to be able to save that restaurant and do it very quickly so you could put your phone away, kind of get back to enjoying your experience. Um, so we came up with the idea for Etch, um, simple sort of bookmarking app. Um, etch as in etch it in your memory. So that's where we came up with the name. Um, and then we realized that there is a bigger opportunity to connect with your friends. Um, and that's where sort of the recommendation service um, was born. We were thinking, okay, you have all these great places you've saved. Now how can you discover new ones that are outside of what you've actually been experiencing? So, but at that point in time, a couple of years ago, I mean, you still have things like Foursquare. Mm-hmm. You have the, the memo thing on your phone. You could take a picture. You're on Facebook. You could, like, check in someplace. It would save all your check-ins. You have, you know, your Google Maps. You could star something there. I mean, there's certainly a plethora of ways you could have captured that information digitally, ranging from existing social media all the way to just a very simple digital notation on your phone or taking a photo of a business card. Right. And, and a lot of that did exist. And, and we, just, we didn't think it was easy enough. Um, a lot of the apps that you described, um, their primary functionality might not be to save the restaurant that you're sitting in. So like I said, we created something that only took three taps for you to open it up, right. save that place. After I've downloaded it, created a profile, and put it on my phone. Okay. Of course. <laughs> so ease of use after I have the, the thing installed. Right. And so it, after, like I was saying, we um, you know had that simple functionality built. We thought it would be really useful to allow you to connect with your friends. Um, and then you could start to share places with your friends and get recommendations from the people you know and trust as opposed to the third-party sources out there, such as you know, Yelp or, or Google Maps. Um, or the New York Times, or the, York or the Times. Michelin Guide, right. or and the those... Pellegrino 50 Best List. Or, I mean, there's also legitimately great third-party sources. Absolutely. And there's, there's expert reviews out there, like yeah. you just mentioned, and, and people love those. And, and you know, if you go out and you try one, you can then save it in Etch right. and actually you know, open it up to your network of friends who might trust you more than an expert because you they know who you are. So similarly to Josh and Ross, Tell is a is a similar idea of, you know, being able to share and find recommendations amongst your friends. What was your initial impetus to think that this would be, you know, stand apart from the crowd in terms of the other apps and, and information sources? Well it's funny. Um, we started in our infancy, you know, from very, very similar roots as Etch, um, less saving, but more about sharing recommendations from your friends with, with trust being the predominant factor. Um, you know, it goes without saying that we could talk about Yelp and inefficiencies in Yelp, trust factors with strangers' reviews, you know, going forward to today in social media's world where, you know, social influencers are respected at an average seven x to 12x ratio over any form of celebrity branded advertisement or standard endorsement so there are better sources of data out there we've since pivoted from peer-to-peer but ironically um it started with iphone yellow notes much like you just alluded to everybody has that list mine was in my iphone yellow notes you know doesn't matter what disparate resource you used google excel word you know a group chat with your friends Everybody has that quote-unquote list, even if it exists in their head. 
Um, the issue with peer-to-peer recommendations and reviews, just statistically speaking, 99% plus of all internet consumers are going to be just that, consumers' voyeurs. They're not going to be data or content generators or aggregators. And uh, we've, we've pivoted a bit, but you know the idea is still the same, a better way to discover um, places in the real world. And there's, there's not much more, in my opinion, that's more powerful than that, right? We were discussing ways before, and it's the same concept. How can we improve our actual you know, physical lives every day through the use of technology and repurposing data. So what was it that made you think that the existing networks, methodologies, and and things weren't sufficient enough that it required time and energy and investment in creating a whole new new platform and entity? Well, you have three fundamental sources, right? You have generic search results. You have the classic editorial model and, you know, we could spend an hour speaking about that. And then you have, you know, blind reviews from masses of strangers. Now, why strangers? But you also have the content of your friends in Facebook and the people you follow on Instagram and the people who are your friends who you follow on Twitter. And you can, you can access where they're eating and where they're going or people checking in on Foursquare and things like that. So you have your peer to peer networks of information that are set up that could certainly be tracking that restaurant information. Challenge you to do it. Go on Facebook, go on Instagram, find the best pizza place in Brooklyn. You can't. Okay. So the best pizza place. So am I looking, so then was that what you were trying to solve? Being able to address a specific question? What's the best pizza, pizza place in Brooklyn versus where's the last pizza place Jennifer ate or where's the place in Brooklyn Jennifer eats or where's the last place she eats or one of my favorite things that I see all the time on Facebook is okay hive mind where's the best pizza place in Brooklyn and then you get all those you know people weighing in with recommendations and maps so point taken on what people are interested in and what has most value to them in their you know information set when they're making a choice but what was it that made you think that we needed a completely new platform to do that in within the landscape of what was already available? There's there's a bit of a siloed thought process or mentality. You know, editors and take digital editors, arguably the hottest one in the realm right now, infatuation. I respect their curation and content maybe more than anybody else in the space right now, as does practically the entire millennial generation. They grew from infancy to mm-hmm. where they yes. are now. Yes, over the last 10 years. And strictly through social media. Yep. Right? Mm-hmm. They are nothing more than a glorified editorial. And as I just mentioned, I respect the hell out of them. Right. But at the end of the day, their model is Eater's model. It's Grub mm-hmm. Street's model. Yep. It's the same model everybody else has. Then you have Yelp and Foursquare. Right? And we don't even have to talk about that. Your listeners no. already have gripes the Yelp and Foursquare. I guarantee it. And then you have generic Google search, Right. And the issue with generic Google search is now they're actually getting really savvy in terms of displaying reviews and content aggregation generation. However, not every source, and again, a lot of blind reviews. I recently read an opt-in with the CEO of Yelp, and you know, they're having some real regulatory issues and actual you know gripes with Google in terms of their fundamental business model and flows. Yelp's basic digital real estate is being pushed down from the standard Google reviews now, which will deliver you results for the best of pizza in Brooklyn. 
but not Jennifer's best pizza in Brooklyn. Yeah, I was wondering <laughs> if I can jump in because I I wanted to hit on that right. So best pizza in Brooklyn, best pizza in Brooklyn means something completely different to you maybe than it does to any of us. Well, if you want to start to deconstruct it, first of all, there's Brooklyn. Yeah. What do we identify as Brooklyn? Are we identifying the entire borough or are people inadvertently assuming that mean we mean a Bushwick or a Williamsburg or a Park Slope or, you know, yep. something like that? Where Brooklyn at? Exactly. Um, and, <laughs> then, yeah, then you know, a year from now, Brooklyn is going to be probably defined differently when they shut down the L train because mm-hmm. then, you know, pockets. So continue. Yeah. And then you have, you know, thin crust, thick crust. Grandma. Tri- yep. You know, deep dip, like you've got all these varieties Neapolitan. of pizza. Exactly. And and you know, I think the Chicago challenge style. <laughs> exactly. You can go on you can go on for days. Square. Um so I think the you know the the challenge is gluten you free. Can <laughs> See, you're making my point though, because I am. I'm helping. Because this is you know, you can search best pizza in Brooklyn and you can do it on Facebook or you can look at the Eater Top Ten list or you can look at any number of editorial lists. And those are all probably great lists. But if I ask Mike, Mike, what's your favorite pizza in Brooklyn? Mike said, I've never had pizza in Brooklyn. <laughs> that could be true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but so, I know where the best gluten-free right. in the West Village is. All right, we're going to talk about that after. Okay. Is it Sansa Gluten? No, I like Wild. Okay. But if I, you know, I know, I've eaten pizza with Mike before, multiple times. So I know what he likes, I know what he doesn't like. So, so you find your baseline. Exactly. So if I'm asking for a pizza recommendation from Mike, Mike already has the context of, you know, what have we eaten before? Where have we been? What might I like to try that maybe I haven't tried? And I think that's sort of something that none of these, you know, none of these available sites obviously can tap into yet. Because you're not, most people are not logged into Yelp. There's no, you know, they're not logged into infatuation. There's no sort of preferential indicators um, and I think that's really what we're trying to tap into with, you know, generating some or, you know, developing something where you can get these recommendations from from your network and people whose tastes, you know, because you've sat and eaten with them. So we are going to take a quick break and we are going to check in with a company that I recommend because they are one of the Heritage Radio Network supporters. Heritage Radio Network is a .org because we are a 501c3 nonprofit. That means we are very much like public TV and public radio. We keep the lights on and the radio on the airwaves thanks to companies like this one. 100 Bogart Street is finally open and ready for Bushwick. 100 Bogart is a brand new, state-of-the-art co-working space that provides turnkey workspaces, including open layout desks, meeting spaces, and furnished private offices. Members have access to top-notch amenities such as custom furniture, high-speed internet, spacious kitchenettes with coffee and tea, printers, scanners, and much more. Alongside their professional work environment, 100 Bogart also provides exclusive educational programming for any curious entrepreneur. Heritage Radio Network has made their new office home at 100 Bogart and will host many events there in the future. For more information about their co-working space, visit 100bogart.com and become a member to network, create, and educate. Well, if you're just joining us and you're wondering what the hell you clicked on, this is Tech Bites, the weekly show on the Heritage Radio Network where we talk about the intersection of food and technology. And today that intersection is living on your smartphone. We are talking with 
the founders and designers from two different restaurant recommendation apps. One is called Tell. If you want to find Tell, it's tell.place, P-L-A-C-E, on the internet. You can find them on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at tell underscore app, A-P-P. If you want to find Etch, which is the second app we're talking with, that is etch, E-T-C-H, A-P-P dot com. You can find them on Twitter and Facebook at GetEtch or on Instagram at Etch. So it's an interesting, um, we're having an interesting conversation about similarities and then differences. It seems that the principal driver here is that the public really wants specific recommendation from their networks, but that there really wasn't a uh, platform that existed to sort of drive that specificity. One thing that I noticed is that both of the apps, you can either create a unique account or you can log on through Facebook. So that's something that we see all the time, but talk to us a little bit about why that is. Is it simply ease of use? Is, it, is there some best practice thing behind it? Do you have to pay Facebook to log in or to use that? Is it open? Like, what's the story? It's completely open. So they actually prefer you to use their um, authentication so that they can count you as another user, um, as a monthly active. But that aside, um, the reason we use Facebook to log in is uh, there's a few different reasons. One, it's it's very easy for a new user to come on who doesn't want to create another account, um, create another password, username, potentially forget those. So it's simple for them to log in. Um, it's a very big audience. So we started with Facebook with 2 billion users. Um, most people have a Facebook account, so they should be able to log in that way. Um, the other reason is that we can immediately um, show you which of your Facebook friends are using Edge. So when you come in there, it makes it easy for you to start to connect with your friends. So is that similar reasons for, for Tell, why you have the Facebook login? Is there anything else under the hood? I'm, I'm always torn between the ease of use of logging in with Facebook and then having yet another connection to Facebook, which I feel I could reach out and grab another piece of my life. And then that slightly creepy aspect now of having everybody seeing where you are and where your apps are and what you're doing. There's a, it could be generationally. I'm not a millennial who grew up sort of having this very public public display of all of my activities but i still get the creep factor um yeah the same exact reasons ease of use you know not having to remember another layer of authentication but also um you know the demographic information that you can capture from your users through facebook api uh we only use either facebook or phone number authentication as of now both for ease of use and for the fact that we you know, don't want people to have to be burdened with another password. Um, you can also sign in as a guest in Detail without actually having to authenticate at all. So just in terms of just general um, user behaviors without you know revealing anything that would be considered proprietary for either of your companies, do most people just log in via Facebook? Is it 50-50 between Facebook and guest, or is it everybody mostly Facebook? Yeah, so we, I mean, as of now, Facebook is the only login option for us. So, you know, 100% of logged in users are using Facebook. Um, we do give people the option to skip the login. Um, basically, it, it lets them preview the app. You can kind of see what it does. Um, you can take it for a bit of a test drive before you actually 
commit to logging in with Facebook, um, which we found to be really, really effective. Um, you know, without getting into numbers, we've we have a really good conversion rate from people who skip the login and then eventually go back and log in with Facebook. Um, but we found, and we found that once we added that ability, we had a much better conversion rate in general for people who download the app and actually log in. So I think part of it is also people who don't want to commit to logging in before they even know what they're logging into, um, which is something that, that we tried to solve for. So that's interesting when you talk about people going back and converting. The other thing that's interesting is Facebook's the only sign-in. So, I mean, I suppose at this point in time, Facebook is a pretty sure thing that you can build a business on top of the foundation of Facebook and not have to worry about that being a problem that Facebook might disappear or be problematic in the future. You're pretty secure in that, in your business planning. It's kind of interesting, I think, a little bit, no? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, at least today, Facebook is probably about as sure thing as any other company yeah. in terms of sticking yeah. around. Um, I mean, I will say we are going to add other options right. down the road because I mean, we have gotten you, feedback. You could, you, could go, you could flash back and say, yeah, we're building this and it's just going to be for Hotmail users. <laughs> and everybody who has a Hotmail account is going to log in and it's going to be great. We hope I mean, that, Facebook is obviously a little bit yeah, different, we, but we, just in terms of the evolution of technology, it's, it's also interesting that you know, now businesses are built on top of a foundation that is, is you know, where another social media platform is a, is a mandatory requirement. Yeah, I mean, I'll, put it, I'll put it this way. If we end up outliving Facebook... That would be amazing. That would be a great thing. They would write songs about you. Yeah. yeah. So, so if that ha- <laughs> if that happens, then I'll be very happy. So when you one of one of the things that uh, we're interested in in this show also into the point about you know privacy and passwords and information and things like that. When you when people log on vis-a-vis their Facebook account. How does that interact in terms of your app's user agreements and then the Facebook user agreements? And then the Facebook always has sort of these undulating updates on a regular basis. We recently did a show on reading the terms of use for Instagram. And with so many conversations that are happening now in the news and politics, um, just sort of in, in general about you know web usage and privacy and IP history and all those kinds of things... I think people are increasingly um, aware of, you know, the big, the big lines that are out there in terms of what they're actually doing when they download apps and then go through the internet. And I think companies are also, some are trying to be more transparent, some aren't, and are lobbying to be less. So. Yeah, I mean, so when we when someone logs in with Facebook, you know, like any other app that uses Facebook, it shows you exactly what information you're you're providing, which in our case is public profile, email address, and friends list. So we're not we're not collecting any, any information that we're not actively using to to sort of make their app experience better. Um, so if you know Facebook changed the way that they allowed use of that information, that would obviously sort of have downstream A impact. Mm-hmm. But it's you know it, it's that type of information is probably pretty. Um, mainstream. Pretty safe, man. Yeah, mainstream, standardized, I guess. Yeah. Um, as far as, I mean, just to, to touch on terms of use, I mean, I think, first of all, I would encourage everyone to read the terms of use whenever they download a new app. Do um, you? I, 
I do in some cases. Um, I don't always follow my own advice. Let, let's go around the room. The last, the, your app, your Robinhood app, mm-hmm. did you read the terms of use when you downloaded it? I did not, no. So, and you're also trading stocks on it, and you didn't read the terms of use, even though you're making financial transactions. Yeah, I think um, even though something that's financial is, um, you know, the the importance of privacy seems more obvious than maybe other um, right. app styles or app genres, but um, they they've really established themselves as a as a legitimized business, and they have such a so a you big have user complete base. faith in them. I don't have complete faith in anything. <laughs> but enough not to have to read the terms. Yeah, of I mean, an app like Robinhood, I'm not, I'm not worried about. Um, maybe uh, small, particularly social apps. Right. Um, I'm a little more curious about what exactly they want and, what, and are right. they going to post for me. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, banking apps, financial apps, even though now that I'm saying that, I'm like, is this crazy that I'm not reading their terms of use? They seem a little less intimidating to me than, I mean, money's money, but information is kind of can be used against you. Did you read the terms of use when you downloaded Waves? Absolutely not. And I call a complete lie on anyone that says they really read terms of use. I, South I Park agree. did an entire episode on this called the Human Sense Silicon iPad. Silicon Valley jokes about it as well. <laughs> oh. yeah, Jared in Silicon Valley goes, oh, that's no, ridiculous. Everyone reads this. Nobody one. reads no one. terms of no use. No one does. I only have read our own app's terms of use because, because I, had to. I had to crawl through it for yeah, legal. Exactly. Yeah, nobody reads terms exactly. of use. You, For all you know, you're handing over your third-born child. Absolutely. And I, I'm going to ask the same question just to go around the room. Did, did either of you you read the terms of use for the Nike Plus running app and for the for the password for, for LastPass? No, I didn't, and I probably should have. No, absolutely not. <laughs> and, and, I mean, in my case, it's like the uh, the uh, perception of safety. It's like being in a cab and not wearing your seatbelt because the guy's not going to get into an accident. Exactly. So. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's really fascinating, and I think that I think probably ninety nine percent of the public is is exactly the same. I think that there's this, to your point of the the taxi analogy, there's this sense of security that well, it's like, it's in the app store. Like Apple went through some sort of vetting process to make sure that it was kind of legit and put it in the store and lets it run on my phone and you know all those kinds of things. So I think there's also these perceptions of it's okay. Um, and then also, I think there's also the piece of, you know, do you find that conversations that you have with people about data and information, most of them are just sort of having difficulty following you? I think most people have no idea what it even means to say, you know, some third party is going to purchase your IP history. It, it's a completely different day and age, right? I mean, there, the, the bar has been so severely raised. Think about this, the, the pure velocity and speed at which apps are downloaded from the iOS store every single day, there would literally not be enough time in the day for people to read terms of use. Do you, does anyone know what the stats are on how many apps get downloaded from the iOS store? That would be—I'm sure it's fascinating. No. Yeah, I don't. I'm sure it's fascinating. We'll have to take. We'll have to check into that. So, what are you know? What's the what's the goal or what's the vision for both Tell and Etch in terms of what you? envision your apps doing community wise recommendation wise moving you know in the next six months the next year the next five years i mean aside from the obvious you know unicorn sale and all those (laughs) kinds of things but you know just given what's happening in terms of information sharing and communities and 
You know, one thing that's also amazing is that, you know, technology has has empowered people to rewrite traditional demographic guidelines, you know, sort of what what we call a, a you know people's interest groups and how you can define groups of people and go out and market to them and chase them people are inventing that themselves almost on a on a second to second basis because you know everything is so wide open so i'd also be curious to see if if you have any thoughts or ways of how you can maybe predict or kind of keep ahead of a curve that seems to be evolving in in a pace that's very quick and also very unknown in some respects. Yeah, I mean, I, I can start just in terms of, you know, what we're thinking about. So I think, you know, one of the things that we, th- we talk about is the idea around connecting people with local businesses, right? So how the obvious question that comes up most of the time is how are we going to make money? Well, ultimately, we're going to be asking local businesses for money, right? So we're going to, we're not going to charge our customers, but we're going to be going to local businesses and trying to... So an, an, an advertising model, Yeah, basically. exactly. Right. So we need to do something, ultimately, that's going to be valuable to them. Um, you know, nobody needs no one needs a, a friend to tell them what you know McDonald's is like, or what Cheesecake Factory is like. Everyone kind of knows that. But the neighborhood bar, or the neighborhood restaurant, you know, that's something where word of mouth is really important for the local business, um, as well as for, for the neighborhood. Um, so I think... You know, ultimately, if we can create the go-to place to connect people and networks with local businesses that they would enjoy and go back to mm-hmm. and repeat, um, that's kind of that would that, have value that's, to that's the best case scenario, right? Actually, I actually have a question, if you don't mind. Sure, for, for absolutely. Sure. How do you guard against the incestuous nature of Yelp that everybody hates in terms of there actually being some form of preferential treatment if you're charging local businesses like how do i know that or in C- or another case study which is similar to yours in terms of a pay for play mm-hmm. model of preference seamless it's it's it you should- know they you can pay extra i mean anybody who's on that recommended page in that first poll page is paying for that yeah so so i think the the counter to that or, or the or the way that we would guard ourselves against that is we wouldn't show ads for places that you haven't already indicated some sort of preference for, right? So when you're saving places or when your network is saving places, you've sort of indicated that you have some kind of an affinity for it. You've indicated that you want to try it. um, And that may or may not unlock some sort of advertisement or offer um, that a local business can sponsor. You know, the idea is not that you're going to be searching for a searching through a directory of, of, you know, restaurants or bars or, or local businesses, and then we'll push, you know, five results to the top. The idea is that we want to be able to encourage people to go back to places that they've already liked um, or for sort of first or second degree connections to discover something that um, their friend has already liked and, and that person might like as well. Okay. How about Tell? What do you see for the future of Tell? Oh, we're actually already generating revenue. Um, we just landed a major advertising sponsor this past month. It's still a little bit early, and um, nobody's actually focusing on the vertical mm. as we are. So if you don't mind, we're going to No, no, not that. at all. <laughs> uh, but my question wasn't necessarily advertising-driven. I think he answered the question with a response that was advertising. The question was a much more open, what's the next progression of Tell? Mm. 
Well, if I remember the genesis of your question, it was more or less the, the, the velocity of technology. And mm-hmm. it's an, you know, take Snapchat and Facebook as the perfect case study, right? You know, Snapchat, Evan Spiegel, they stumbled upon, you know, a phenomenal idea. They basically figured out a way to productize natural communication the way the consumers were already communicating every single day, right? Um, Oddly enough, literally started with a sexting discussion in a Stanford classroom. That doesn't surprise me. Right. So, you know, <laughs> look at their stock price, you know, guarantee you, what's the date today? It's the 19th, 20th, right? The consumer lockup ends next week, um, or the insider lockup ends next week, excuse me, their Q2 release is early August. Like, watch what happens to the stock price. Facebook was behind the ball. When you have the infrastructure, the scale, and the size of Facebook, you're going to squash that competitor. So, you know, the question of the technological curve keeping you up at night as an entrepreneur, it's always going to be there. There's, there's no way to negate it. Um, you know, everybody in this room is by nature slightly arrogant and a little stubborn. Otherwise, you have to be. Right. We you have be, to be. Exactly. Being an entrepreneur and a startup founder, whether it's a, uh, an app or a platform or a restaurant, you, you have to have this very interesting uh, intersection of extreme audacity and extreme confidence that can be almost belligerent in that it needs to withstand all the naysayers. But then you also have to have this sort of odd uh, flexibility and malleability to be able to be uh, flexible and iterate and kind of move forward and Fail fast. Exactly. Compromise in the right moments and, and, and stand, you know, have a hard stop in, in other moments. It, it's a very interesting thing. But yes, you have to have that, and that arrogance and confidence. And no amount of money in the world that you can possibly raise is ever going to dictate success. I mean, look mm-hmm. at companies like Quirky that raised over $250 million an hour yep. to business or, you know, you can name a slew. Well, and look at Hampton others. Creek. I mean, the news, you know, recently with Hampton Creek is that everybody's, you know, stepping down and that's not doing very well. And at one moment it would look like, you know, sort of a, a model of a pioneer of, you know, fixing the food system, you know, combined with, you know, mega dollars and, and all that kind of stuff. So And Blue Apron. And Blue Apron. Yeah. At least they IPO'd, though. They, they got, did. They got the cash off the table. They did. It doesn't matter if Amazon squishes them now except for their shareholders, which yeah. is a shame. It's so fascinating. I feel like it's moving so quickly also that it's it's almost hard to keep up with. Um, and this also moved very quickly um, because we are out of time. And I'm sorry for that because I think we, we, had at le- we have at least another full episode that we could talk about all these things. We didn't even um, get to all the things that I wanted to talk about now that we have, you know, the four of you in the room together. So... I will say, you know, keep us posted on upcoming things and happenings um, so that we can maybe revisit your stories and, and the companies at different points in time. We do keep up sometimes. It's nice to have a part two to an episode. And, you know, I would say to, um, to the guys at Etch, if you are getting ready to sort of build that, build that um, profit model, a format that we do occasionally on the show is we have um, companies with potential clients as focus groups and have a little bit of like a pitch. And it's a very interesting format and um, has been very uh, helpful, I think, in some instances, especially in the restaurant world where the margins are so, so, so (laughs) small. Um, Oftentimes, uh, founders think they have a great idea 
And then when they're met with the realities of the restaurant world, it's a completely different thing. I've, I go to a lot of stand-ups and spotlights and pitch things um, with my husband, who is a chef. And we sit in the audience and we listen to all these, you know, some great ideas. And, you know, he just sits there sometimes and shakes his head and says, yeah, that's never going to work. <laughs> Um, and I would I would put the same offer out to you know the gentleman at Tell if if there's something happening it's it's a fun format to do. We tremendously appreciate that. Our focus has never been on revenue generation from four wall brick and mortar locations. Um, no. Just or whatever at, it is. As you mentioned, the, the whatever it the is, the budgets are so slim. Yeah, we had um, there's a uh, an app called Jitjat Joe, which is the Uber of restaurant staff and. We had two cooks who were looking for work actually walk through the app and had someone from the company and they talked about, you know, if it really worked for them and if they would do it and if they were viable candidates because an app like that, you need staff to make it work. Getting the, getting the restaurant clients who need help is easy, but it's the staff part that's difficult. So there's a lot of different scenarios, but I throw that out there to everybody. Before we go, I always like to ask people for a little bit of advice, um, something actionable maybe that our listeners can take to heart. And given that we have a room full of, of entrepreneurs and startup folks who, are, who have made their way from concept to sale to actual you know, life in the world, looking back in hindsight, we have a lot of entrepreneurs and startup folks on this show and a lot of listeners What's your best piece of advice to someone listening on how to make a cold call or make a cold introduction to either you're at an event, you're going to meet somebody, you see somebody who you think you know would be a great investor, mentor, advisor, product developer. How do you reach out and get to somebody that you don't know? If you want money, ask for advice. If you want advice, ask for money. If you stick your hand out and ask somebody for $5, they're much more likely to tell you how to go earn $5. If you ask somebody how to earn $5, they're much more likely to give it to you. Don't call and sell with the expectation of selling the very first time. Give them something they can't say no to. Build a rapport and trust and follow up. Be persistent. That's great. That's a that's like a total seminar and like a forty five <laughs> second soundbite. That's perfect. For me, I was just going to say um, full transparency. So one of our um, marketing efforts is is reaching out to Instagram influencers, foodies, and we have no budget for collaboration, which was our common response um, that we got back. Um, so we changed our approach and laid it out on the table. We have no budget for collaboration. Here's what we can offer you. Um, here's how we think this might be valuable for you um, in approaching them that way. So they would understand where we're coming from, but we could also offer them something as well. And then people who buy in are people who are buying in really with a full enthusiasm for the actual project exactly. at hand. Exactly. That's, that's great advice also. I would say uh, do your homework. Um, it takes literally five minutes, no more than that, to, to just look up who you're talking to and, and find something to you know start a conversation with or something that you might have in common, um, you know, anything that can kind of help kick off a conversation kind of to, to your point about you know, not coming up and asking for money, but you know, asking for advice or building a rapport. Um, it's the easiest thing in the world to do, and I think so many people don't do it. 
um, or don't take the time. They just kind of pick up the phone with the same pitch over and over and over again. Well, I'm a designer, so I I'm, I do that for a reason. Um, so I can I. Can but you came on the radio show, so that meant you had something to say. Um, well, I think uh, I think in my experience that uh, under I think understanding for for me as a designer, I can only think of it from that perspective. But I think um, understanding your audience is like a really uh, is a really important selling point. Um, with a with a social app, you have the luxury of of having a statistical understanding of your audience, um, and if you can kind of segment that in a unique way, you have something that um, is is almost definitely valuable to someone. Um, and then I combine that with Josh's rhetoric, and it's working out. That's good. Good team. <laughs> So we are out of time official. I want to thank Josh and Ross from Tell for coming out to visit with us, along with Michael and Bradley from Etch. Both of the apps are really um, interesting. They're really easy to use. They are nice to look at. So I encourage everybody to give them a try. And I want to thank everyone for listening to the last episode of the season. We are going on summer vacation until September 7th will be the first brand new episode of Tech Bytes for fall 2017. In the interim, we'll still be broadcasting shows. We're going to figure out what the top two favorite shows are and broadcast them while we're on vacation. If you would like to tell us what your favorite show is, please send us an email, techbytes at heritageradionetwork.org. If you want to follow along what we're up to in the break, follow us on social media at TechBytesHRN on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Go to HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We have 106 episodes on demand. You can also subscribe and listen at Stitcher Radio and iTunes. You can also leave us a five-star review if you really, really love us. And again, last call, we are .org. And if you really love us and think that food radio and conversations about tech and farms and school lunch and all those things are important. Send us what you spent on pizza this week. We'll make more radio and keep the lights on. I hope everyone has a great summer vacation and I will see you in the fall. I'm Jennifer Leeds and this is Tech Bites. for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.